What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Addiction to opioids, primarily prescription painkillers and heroin, is driving this epidemic. It is destroying lives, families, and the fabric of entire communities. Opening a Senate hearing, Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley said addiction to prescription painkillers or opioids often leads users to heroin. Vermont Democrat Pat Leahy said he has heard heartbreaking stories of pain, addiction, and death from overdoses. Donald Trump's latest showdown on Fox News has him sitting out tomorrow's GOP presidential debate. Trump will instead host an event for veterans. This is USA Radio News. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Catherine Drew. French Justice Minister Christiane Taubira has resigned in protest at the government's plans to change the constitution to enshrine the current state of emergency. The measure would see people convicted of terrorism losing their citizenship. Billionaire mogul Donald Trump has pulled out of the final Republican TV debate ahead of the Iowa caucuses. And U.S. President Barack Obama has called for research into the Zika virus, which is harmful to unborn children, to be speeded up. Is buying something that is made in the USA important to you? How do you know that it really is made in the USA? Certified Inc. is the only supply chain audit company on the planet which qualifies country of origin labeling. If it's important to you as a consumer to know where the products you buy and use in your own home come from, then it's also important for your customers. Visit us at madeinusa.net and find out more. Go to madeinusa.net because it's that important webmasterradio.fm take your hat off kick your feet up and log into the feed we're here for you 24 7 downloading the cyber law and business report only on webmasterradio.fm all rise welcome to the cyber law and business report get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day this is your home for the latest on internet law and policy hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here this is the cyber law and business report now please welcome your host the founder of the internet law center bennett kelly good morning this is bennett kelly broadcasting from in the valley of Los Angeles, not this is exactly Silicon Beach, but close. 
Um, we have, we're with a special guest today. And we've been, um, over the course of the last several weeks, we've been airing our interviews with authors from the Miami Book Fair. We're going to be airing our last interview that we heard earlier uh, with David Posner. He's the author of God's Banker, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. And um, after that um, expose on the Vatican Bank, we're going to talk to um, legendary writer, producer, director David Paulson who actually has some insights himself um, from his experience as a journalist um, going to the Vatican and his interaction with some people who are covering story. So without further ado, we're going to jump into um, our previous recorded interview with David Paulson, excuse me, with, um, with, with Gerald Posner, and then we're going to talk to David um, after the break. So, Posner, thank you very much for joining us, and we're, we're very excited uh, about this book. Um, I'm thrilled to have you. Full disclosure to our audience, um, I am named after a Catholic priest who actually wrote books for the church, um, but um, we're very happy to go over this topic nonetheless. And you explained early on um, you know, why you, you wanted to write this book, that in, in your other work in, in investigating in terms of when you were in South America and Paraguay and investigating, you know, the role of how Nazis fled to South America, you know, there was this, this lingering of money or assistance from the Vatican. And he kept saying, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that. Now, what made you come back to it now? Well, it took me, you know, Bennett, nearly, I mean, it was in the early 80s that I came across those first links of, down in South America of where the Vatican might have played a role in the escape of some Nazis. And it took me nearly, 20, you know, after that 20 years before I found a, a publisher willing to say, go ahead and do it, uh, you know, to look into that subject. Because what happens is you get a different book may, you know, lead you to other things. And you sort of put them in the back of your mind. You say, one day I'd like to get to that. But you never really get the ability to do it unless you find a publisher who takes the risk with you that finds an interesting story, follow the evidence, and, and make something out of it. And it turned out to be a completely different story than I expected. It wasn't just World War II and Nazis. As you know, it turns into this 200-year history of finances, but it took me that long before Simon & Schuster said, go ahead and do it, and then took me another nine years on and off to finish that book. And and so part of the key point in your book, I guess, is this, the starting of the Vatican as an independent state as a result of you know, the creation of modern-day Italy. And, and is there really any precedent of, of, a, of religious order becoming its own state. No, there isn't. I mean, that's what makes the Vatican such a unique story. There's nothing really like it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned before that you had family members who had written books on the catechism and in Catholic books, and I was raised Catholic, and I was raised as Sisters of Charity in, in grammar school and then Jesuits in high school. I was an altar boy, and so I thought of it, as many Catholics do, as primarily just a religion. We We don't grow up in the faith thinking of it as a sovereign state, and it's that unique dual personality it makes it different than anybody else. Sometimes people will say to me, oh, well, what about Saudi Arabia or the Muslim countries? They're, they're theocracies. They are countries that have a state religion, but they don't represent that religion 
as a single source for the rest of the world, uh, and that's clear in Islam, uh, Shias and Sunnis are killing each other over who has the right to, you know, to speak for the religion. But in Christianity, nobody has the right to speak for all the faith, except for just the Pope when it comes to Catholics, and they do wear that sovereign hat. I guess the reason that it's unusual is they used to be an empire when they were Pope kings, and they lost exactly. that for a while. And they got it back as a sovereign state with low postage stamp size of property in Vatican City. But it does make them the one and only church and religion rolled into one. It is. And actually, I had a, a colleague whose mother was the, um, or grandmother was the ambassador to Rome. He said, nothing like visiting Italy when your grandmother is the ambassador to the Vatican. It's, it's a nice way to, to travel. We get a little bit of ahead of ourselves. What is the role of the Vatican Bank? You know, that, that's a key question. You cover business. That's why I view this story of what I call God's bankers more of a business story than a story about religion, because in the end, it's the story of how they, they deal with their money, and the Vatican Bank becomes the, the key part of it. Here's a 2,000-year-old institution, and we're only talking about the Vatican Bank being in existence for the better part of 70 years. I mean, it's formed in the middle of World War II, and that should immediately rent anybody listening. You know, why are they forming the equivalent of a, their Federal Reserve and an investment bank like Goldman Sachs in the middle of the war? And we'll right. talk about that after. But it then becomes a scandal-ridden bank, sort of a bank, I call it, in the heart of a foreign capital, in the heart of Rome, for the next 70 years, used for by wealthy Italians to dodge taxes, used by money launderers, used by mobsters to put you know uh, offshore money in, into the bank, They're used by Italian politicians as, as slush funds. Uh, it may finally be cleaning up its act, but the Vatican Bank becomes the central story of how the Vatican sort of went awry when it came to dealing with money. So who are the Vatican Bank's depositors and do, do people... Can you borrow money from the bank? Yeah, that, that's a great thing. It's a, okay, it's a bank. I said before, you're, you're going to start to think that I keep saying it's a, it's a story like no other, but uh, I, I don't like to overstate or oversell the story, but the Vatican Bank is a mother in the sense that when it was formed in, in June of 42, its only shareholder is the Pope. It has no obligation to, uh, to make a profit. It's very unique among banks because it doesn't make any loans. It's never made loans. It doesn't make loans. So when the, we had the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008, the Vatican Bank sort of emerged unscathed because it didn't have all of these crazy derivative packages of uh, mortgages uh, you know, wrapped up into different products. None of that. You can't open a, an account at the Vatican Bank. You're not supposed to unless you're a religious order, a Catholic religious order, a Catholic charity, or a citizen of Vatican City, that means it's what's happened over time is a priest or a monsignor or bishop opens up a fake charitable organization, and that account really is hiding money for money launderers or people evading taxes. That's how they got around that. But it also is very interesting because the bank doesn't have branches anywhere except Vatican City. There's just one branch. Um, the ATMs that it uses inside Vatican City, one of the languages in the ATM is Latin. <laughs> True, the only <laughs> ATM in the world with Latin. It, it, so what made it unique is that from its charter, it accepted physical deposits, meaning that it would take in, if you brought in a truckload of cash, it would accept it. If you brought in diamonds or gold, it would give you the equivalent value for what that was worth into, a, into an account. 
And since, as you know, there's no customs border, there's no wall between Vatican City and Rome, you're on one street corner, you're in Rome, and you're in Italian jurisdiction. You cross the street when the light turns green, and you're suddenly in Vatican City, a different country and a different jurisdiction. And the reason that was so critical is that it made everybody in Italy realize that if they wanted to, to take money off the radar, off the radar of Italian tax investigators or drug enforcement agencies or international bankings, all they had to do was physically get the funds into Vatican City, which they had to drive in or get it in there, and then it would go dark. It would literally disappear because Vatican wasn't reporting anything and wasn't reporting to other jurisdictions. It sort of was the, the best way to make money sort of, you know, pop off the, the scale and stay away from investigators. And, and of all places to put this bank, I mean, granted, you didn't have too many choices since, the, you know, the Vatican's a small operation, but to place it in the economy, European, the European nation that has the largest underground economy to begin with. I mean, I think what is it? I've seen statistics as much as one third of the Italian economy is underground. And, exactly. and, and so to create this, this easy tool, um, in, in a, in a, and it's this swamp of you know of, of under underground transactions. It's, it's just amazing. The, it's very interesting, Ben, that you say that because I've I've come. My mother's side of the family was Italian, so I can say this without. Uh, and that is that I've come to realize it in studying the Vatican that it is it very very much reflects the personality of the country around it and the, and the personality of the country that makes up most of the curia, the bureaucracy. There are only seven to 800 men, and they're all men, no women there, running both the church and the state. That's the hierarchy of the Vatican. And in World War II, when they formed the Vatican Bank, it was 98% Italian. So, you know, Italy is a country that's had 71 post-war governments. It's been filled with corruption scandal after corruption scandal, filled with chaos and inefficiency. The Vatican looks to be more stable and efficient because they have this rule, this sort of what I call non-hereditary monarchy that forces right. the Pope to have control until he dies, or now, as we know from the last one, resigns. But in essence, it's the same chaotic Italian mess that is taking place in Italy, but just appears to the surface to be somehow more controlled. But all that internecine battling for money and power is taking place. It's just as chaotic at times. And the remarkable part of it to me is that here you have a situation with the Vatican Bank in the 80s in which the Italian authorities, the tax authorities and the prosecutors believed that even the Vatican had gone beyond the pale. They indicted in Italy the head of the Vatican Bank, Bishop, and his two top Vatican sovereign card and said, I'm sorry, these men are in Vatican City. We have no extradition treaty with you, the Italian government, and we won't extradite them. It went all the way to the Italian Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sided with the Vatican. So in an instance in which the two did split over whether crimes had been committed, financial Vatican Bank, um, the Vatican used its sovereign card to keep men from ever serving a day in prison. And I think you're, you're talking about Bishop Marchenko. Uh, did I say exactly. his name right? And exactly. you know who, who actually uh, almost almost pre <laughs> preceding uh, the future Pope. You know, he, this is a Polish gentleman, I believe, from the, the North Side of Chicago. Right, right. Lithuanian, very well connected to the Polish Pope. Yes, but, but preceded him. And you know, I we, we were talking offline. That, you know, there were authorities who would you know, just stand at the 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 sidewalk at the the line between um, Italy and the Vatican, and I understood that he would come out 
and he would talk to them and they would offer him a cigarette and he would say, come closer because <laughs> he wanted to make sure he got that cigarette on the, the Vatican side of the line. And yeah, uh, no. apparently since that, he's apparently he's now retired in Sun City. But he, why don't you explain? He a few years ago. Here oh, he in, did. Okay. Sun City, Arizona. He, re, he was sent to Siberia, which was Arizona. Um, <laughs> but you're absolutely right, Ben. He, he, they, they had police at, his, at a, the best golf course country club in Rome because he used to like to play there. In case he showed up, they were going to arrest him. They put... Um, they kept this, an empty table for him at one of Rome's best restaurants where he used to like to have lunch. Uh, the, the owners hoped that he would come in for lunch, and the police kept a lookout car there in case he did to try to pick him up. You could only, you know, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just, uh, it's priceless. And, and, and in terms of crimes, and we're talking about you know, forged um, financial instruments that were being sold. Right. The we're and in the we're talking about uh, you know in terms of financial crimes outright uh, bankruptcy fraud and fraudulent transfer of funds uh, breaking laws on um, uh, Italian currency laws Italian export laws and um, the the remarkable thing about this is the Vatican eventually settled for a quarter billion dollars which is a lot of money but to it it was a lot 244 million in cash back in the 80s to a group of banks uh, and it didn't admit any wrongdoing. It said that it was making the payment, and you'll love this, for, quote, moral considerations. Yes. Now, can you imagine, right, here's an organization that doesn't, you know, pay a dollar out to anybody if it doesn't have to. It pays a quarter billion out to a group of banks that are suing it for fraudulent, uh, all types of fraud, and says, you know, it's only for moral considerations. Well, the way to spin that but, is that the, uh, <laughs> the Vatican was actually buying one of its own indulgences. <laughs> Very well said. Nobody's ever said that. I think you're absolutely right. And, and for your listeners, indulgences were one of the ways they used to support themselves, selling a chit of paper that sort of forgave you for transgressions and sins. And I think you're absolutely right. That was a very expensive indulgence, but bought them immediate <laughs> forgiveness across the board. Well, 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 well thought of. You know, I was going to say that one of the things that we didn't know until after Marchinkas, there was a period in which the bank was quiet, meaning there were no scandals breaking out. And, and a lot of commentators thought, gee, they must be behaving, they must have reformed it. Right. That hadn't turned out to be the case at all. And we later found out that during that sort of quarter called 90s and early 2000s period, when we thought it was behaving, and that Italian politicians were using it for slush funds, like uh, Andriotti, Giulio Andriotti, the most powerful post-war yeah. Italian politician, seven times prime minister, had a fund called the Cardinal Spellman Foundation through which he ran about $60 million in cash over the years to pay everything from his wife's Florentine jeweler to uh, uh, political allies as a slush fund. So, you know, that's what the Vatican Bank was being used for. And I was, you know, when going through the book, I, was, I heard about the scandal, you know, with Marchenko, but I hadn't heard about that, that more recent scandal. And it just surprised me that even, you know, here we are in modern day and you have the Vatican bankers still resigning again. And you, know, it, it, you can't help being struck by the or in awe of the kind of majesty of it all. Right. But, um, but given the church and its mission... It's also at the same time be like, oh my God, this this is <laughs> this is a lot of money here um, in right. terms of the art, in terms of all the uh, elaborate you know, palaces and, and cathedrals, um, and so that conflict between really the mission and the institution you know, is physically apparent there. But 
one thing that struck me, I think, in, in your story, and as well as throughout the whole, um, you know, priests, you know, sexual abuse cases that have gone through um, these past few years, is that time after time after time, you have the church having to choose between the institution or its mission. Mm-hmm. And time after time after time, it seems to choose the institution. Yeah, it's very interesting because you're right. There is that, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you're in Vatican City, that uh, uh, visual contradiction between the, the grandeur of the institution and uh, serving the poor and the times, as you know, in the, in the sexual abuse cases in which I have a chapter about how they made the choices time and time again to sort of try to protect the finances as opposed to necessarily serving the mission of full disclosure in the early years. The uh, it, It's not a 2,000-year-old institution for nothing. And what I mean by that, right. it survived, you know, the, 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 the sacking by the Huns. It survived Napoleon taking Rome and taking the Pope back to France as a prisoner. It survived Hitler. It's done that because at times its natural default reflex is the preservation of the institution under the belief that if the institution survives intact, it can carry forward its mission forever. So, you know, it's not making that conscious decision, but it seems to be that is the reflex. You're right, time and time again. And which then undermines its ability to promote the mission or its credibility, I think. Yes, credibility, I think, because what you get when you go to Vatican City, and you're very right, and people have seen the pictures, those who haven't been there, is you do get a feeling of the sense of grandeur. That, And you have to remember, if you bring yourself back just before, I know this is going to sound like ancient times, but in terms of an an ancient institution like the Vatican, but before 1870, so you're going back, uh, you know, some 150 years, Vatican City was just part of the capital of an empire. It wasn't the entire sovereign state, so it was the capital of 20, 15 to 20,000 square miles of Italy called the Papal States. So what we're looking at when we go into Vatican City is would be the equivalent of looking at just part of London. If, if England no longer existed and England was just a part of London, that's what was left. So we're looking at a remnant of what had been an empire, and we're looking at the grandest part of the empire. It would be as if in what was left of of Britain was just Buckingham Palace and all of the royal palaces. You went back and you looked at it, and this was the remnants of the empire. We're looking at the remnants of the papal empire, and that's what's standing today. Um, And so it does look a little uncongruous to this mission of serving the poor. Although, I mean, considering we're not not invading um, countries and and, um, engaging in crusades, I I guess that that, that is quite an advancement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. The the word is spread today only peacefully, no longer by uh, papal armies. There you have. Although they do have the the Swiss guards, I guess. Um, <laughs> now, defensive only. One thing in the whole scandal that that broke, you know, with, with the the bank was a Banco Ambrosio, right? And then the the, the timing of Pope. John Paul I's death. You know, he had only been Pope for, I think it was a, a, a hundred days. Uh, 33 and days. 33 yeah. days. And the, the, you write about the decision or about whether or not he should, the question of whether or not he should have had an autopsy. Right. The, the first, the, the person calling for it, um, 
once once it seems that the consensus is not to get it, even though a pathologist says, "Well, we we think it's a heart attack, but we don't know we don't know if it's anything else. We only will know with an autopsy." And he seems to relent. Um, is is there any real? I, mean, I know conspiracy theorists will, will will consider, you know, it doesn't take much to keep one alive. But do you think there's any real thought that something may have happened to the Pope? There, I don't think there is, and. You know, in some ways I say unfortunately. I mean unfortunately only in terms of uh, commercial sales of a book. There was a book years ago that uh, concluded that the Pope had been murdered. I think it sold five or six million copies. If I had been able to come back with the proof that would convince you and, and other journalists that uh, absolutely the that, you know Pope John Paul I had been murdered, I'd sell a lot more copies of God's Bankers than just telling a 200-year history of the Vatican. <laughs> so I looked for some evidence that was wrong. And what I did find is what you talked about a moment ago, which is, look, at 33 days, short a short papacy. He's expected to be the reformer. He doesn't like Marchinkus, who's running the Vatican Bank, so they think he's going to get rid of Marchinkus. And then a, a, a Russian Orthodox uh, you know, bishop meets with him early on and dies of a heart attack during the meeting, so there were some rumors that he had died of a poisoned coffee that was meant for the Pope. Then the Pope dies after 33 days of, a, of what we assume is a heart attack. They don't do an autopsy, and they lie. The Vatican lies and covers up how he was discovered because a nun finds him at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and the Vatican believes that, oh my God, a nun is going in every day to deliver his coffee. That's going to look bad if a woman is discovering the Pope in bed. So they make her lie. They send her to a nunnery. She's quiet, and they, and they change the story. <laughs> to, to quote so that all unravels, as it necessarily does. It looks like they're covering something up. They were, but it wasn't a murder. <laughs> so. It's an interesting dilemma, but um, we only have a, a few minutes left. What What has been the thing that people grab onto most of, you know, about this book. I mean, I kind of come from a different perspective just because I knew a little bit about the, um, the Banco Ambrosio story. But is it, is it the, the, the link with the, the church and the, the Nazis or I, I, assisting Nazis to leave Europe or just the fact that it's still scandal play today? I think that the thing that I get the most feedback on and people seem to be the most surprised with is that the church that I sort of advanced the story to show that the Vatican Bank was doing business during World War II with the Third Reich. And I always say to them that they shouldn't be surprised by that. We should have been surprised if I didn't find evidence of that. And the reason I say that is they weren't siding with the Germans. They weren't throwing their lot in with the Germans, hoping they would win the war. What they were doing was playing both sides. In 1939, when the war started, they didn't know who would win. They were technically neutral, although they, they were Italian. They liked the Italian side, but they were technically neutral, and they were invested on both sides. They, we knew for years that they had money in America in terms of having bought stocks in, in big Fortune 100 companies. We knew they had bought bonds, and in England, they had bought property in the center of London. But the story by the Vatican was that they had only invested in the Allies and never invested in the Germans. That never made sense to me because they didn't know early on that who would win. And so I now can prove to you that they invested at least in German and Italian insurance companies, big amounts. They were making outsized profits in, in Eastern Europe during, during the war. And only when they realized the war was absolutely going against the Germans in early 44 did they start to peel back on those access investments and at the end of the war they said we were just neutral and only invested in the right side but they in fact you know they, they did both now, now one thing I, I didn't quite see in the book was um did they give out toasters 
<laughs> only prayer candles. <laughs> the opening account, you can get a prayer candle, but that would be about it. Well, I definitely want to think, what is your next project? Uh, you know, that is a great question. We're at the phase, I say we, it's a two-person operation, myself and my wife, uh, Tricia, and we're, we're very close to doing something related to big pharma. But, you know, it's such a broad subject that uh, and that's like saying to you in 2005 that I'm doing something related to the Vatican and we end up with God's bankers. I'm not quite sure where I end up in four or five years, but it will have some medical pharma connection to it. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's such a big topic. Now, is there any chance this might become a documentary? Uh, oh, on uh, the, I'm, I'm hoping so. The, as a matter of fact, we've had some God willing. From, <laughs> yeah, God willing. That's right. Uh, we've had some interest from a, a group of uh, Brits uh, who are interested in in doing something straightforward, and I think that would be fantastic because there are, you know, it's, it's a story that lends itself very well to what I call a straightforward, good documentary, and it would be nice to see. Has the Vatican given you any feedback? No, you know, they've been very, very interesting. I've even had two editorials, one in the Los Angeles Times and one in the Washington Post right before the Pope arrived uh, this summer, uh, calling on the, the Pope to release the, the Vatican's uh, World War II files, especially those of the Vatican Bank, so we could determine uh, more about what they might have done with the Germans. And their response has been just to totally ignore me. It's for very. It's a smart... For an institution that has what I call the long view, they've survived so much in the past, they can survive one book that pricks them a little bit about finances by just ignoring it. That's always been their take, and generally it works for them. And they have the track record and, the, and a long track record, I guess, to make that conclusion. But I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you best of luck on your book tour. Um, the book is God's Banker, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. And um, you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair this, um, this fall. And any other major uh, appearances? Um, I'm going to be in, uh, in Dallas in early November at uh, the Adolphus Hotel as part of their authors, and um, then up in Palm Beach uh, as well in, uh, around in early November at uh, talking to a group of Hadassah, um, uh, Jewish activist women. So uh, those are the two things coming up on the agenda besides the book fair. And then if people want to follow you on the web, how should they do so? Uh, easiest is at my uh, website, which is just www.posner, my last name, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. And there's sort of a bit of everything, including uh, links to recent interviews. And yours, Bennett, will be on there once it, once it airs. I appreciate that. On Twitter? On Twitter, I'm just at Gerald Posner, uh, G-E-R-A-L-D. P-O-S-N-E-R, and um, you'll only, uh, you don't have to worry about me overloading you with tweets, but I do occasionally have a few interesting threads here and there. We'll definitely be following it. So a New York Times bestseller, um, Gerald Posner, check it out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Ben, it's absolutely been a treat. Thank you so much for a great interview. Thank you. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising? Or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? I'm David Ogletree, president of WME Training. Did you know that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average? At WME Training, we can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the marketing experts at wmetraining.com. 
Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and I want to thank Daryl Posner. That was a great interview, and I appreciate him coming on earlier. Um, For more information about this broadcast and about our guests, go to cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, and as usual, and follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. So following up on the interview with Gerald Posner, we have with us David Paulson, who is the only person in television who was written for the Dynasty, Dallas, and Not Landing. He's written, produced, and directed. And um, so going from one dynasty to another. Um, David, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's nice to be here <laughs> in my house. <laughs> at, at his house. <laughs> and um, so we brought David on, um, one, because he, he's, a, he's a good friend, and, and two, just because you know, he has some unique insights. Earlier in his career, you actually went to travel to the Vatican um, to deliver a, a bishop who had just been freed from prison in China. And, um, and then over the course of your experiences, you you got exposed to people who were investigating the Vatican Bank, and so having you know listened to um, Posner's discussion about the book and what 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 takeaways did you have? Well, I'm not. I'm fascinated by what he said, of course, and because he fills in. I mean, he, he he investigated this in a very specific way, in a very clear way. I'm afraid my my um, connections with with Bishop Marcinkus, Archbishop Marcinkus, was. Uh, and the Vatican and, and the entire situation. There was purely in a Forrest Gumpian sort of way <laughs> in that I didn't really belong there. I, mean, I was doing a completely different job. Back in 1970, my partner and I, a fellow named Bill Coleman, and, and I had a, um, had a little film company in New York. And we got a call one day saying that a bishop, a man named James Walsh, had, who had been imprisoned by the Red Chinese for 12 years, had suddenly been released. As it turned out, I won't go into that story, but as, as, it, as it turned out, it looks very much like that was the very first serve in the ping pong game that was eventually called the taunt. That's it. 
Different story, however, but the Marchinkus part of the story is that he got us into the Vatican. He liked the Marinols, and the Marinol Society was the uh, was the order that uh, that we were traveling along with. Um, Bishop Walsh was a was at one time the Superior General of that order, and my partner and I, and my partner's father, who happened to be the the um, PR man for the uh, for the Marinols in Austin, New York at that time, all went to Rome to meet the bishop when he came, when he was flown from Hong Kong to um, Bishop, the Bishop Walsh, that is, not Marchinkus, flown from Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Rome. So we did that, and uh, as, as it happened, uh, when we were flown there, uh, we, we, met, we met the bishop coming off the plane. And my partner had, my partner Bill Coleman had, had interviewed him in Hong Kong when he went over there. And as it turned out, I was the one to go into the, uh, into the Vatican. Actually, it wasn't the Vatican itself. It was Castle Gandolfo, the summer residence of the Pope, Pope Paul VI. And the fellow who got us in there was Bishop Marcinkus. I remember his taking. He liked the, he liked the Marinals. He had a soft spot for the Marinals. And so he got me, himself, a priest who came along and as my, as my assistant, camera assistant, uh, the three of us and our cameras into a tiny, tiny little wooden elevator in, at the Castle Gandolfo. I don't know how the three of us made it up, um, but we did. We got up there and filmed Bishop Walsh, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Bishop Walsh with the Pope and, and Marchinkus. In fact, I have in my room a picture of, um, a picture of uh, the Pope, the Bishop, Bishop Marchinkus behind the Pope, and myself coming in the door. That was my Forrest Company aspect of it. So I met Marchinkus that way. A few years later, but ten, no, some years later, actually it turned out to be almost 20 years later, right? Wow. Um, I think uh, I was running a company for ABC uh, International out of New York and Paris, and I met. Um, it was a time when I was people were pitching stories to me to try to they, they wanted to have their stories put on the air. And one fellow who came along was a man named Detective Joseph Coffey, uh, a very interesting guy. A um, he had been the head of the of the New York at the time I think it was the head of the New York State Anti Organized Crime Task Force. Pro- Prior to that, he had been head of the New York City Anti-Organized Crime Task Force. And when he was doing that, he was working for Frank Hogan, who was the the, um, the DA at the time of New York, a famous man. And this, I think, was in the late 60s or very, very early 70s. And he told me the story of 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 something that happened to him, which which was he had an, an idea... He was trying, he and Hogan were trying to break the New York mob. They were trying to do that. They knew where they were. They knew where the the um, offices, their offices, so to speak, were, private clubs. And so he convinced Hogan, and again, I have to preface this by saying this is remembered hearsay from many years ago. Um, I mean, <laughs> some of it may not be accurate at all, but this is my memory of his, of our long, long conversation many years ago. It's still a little bit better than I read it on the internet. This <laughs> <laughs> is as accurate as I can make it. As we were riding around in his police car all over New York City that night, um, <clears throat> that 1990, I think it was, or 91. At any rate, um, what he told me was he said, I had it. I knew that, that the guys in the mob 
were up to various things, obviously. And I wanted to, to break them. We needed to get their voices. We needed to hear what they had to say. Obviously, they're not going to speak inside the clubs because they knew the mob, mobsters knew that the police were would be um, would have a good chance of taping what they what they said inside. So and and their phones as well. So what did they do? They made a decision to go out to a phone booth or one of a couple phone booths in the area of Mott and Mulberry Streets in New York, which is where um, many hung out at the time, I guess. And um, so Coffee, Joe Coffee, convinced Hogan to let him tape this public phone booth, let him, let him tap it. And uh, that was quite unusual at the time, from what I remember Coffee's telling me. But he did it. And they, he and his partners listened to the conversations. And one day, I'm getting the names. I don't remember the names exactly. One day, he said, Guido yeah. um, goes outside or out and goes into this particular phone booth, and he makes a call, and they take him. And the conversation had to do with Guido's going to Wiesbaden, Germany. Now, Guido had never been north of 14th Street in his life from what Joe told me. And he said, but, and he's going to Wiesbaden? What's he going to Wiesbaden for? So Coffee convinced Hogan to let him go with another policeman and follow, follow him, which was quite unusual at the time, uh, and also got it uh, very expensive as, as well for the department. And um, But he let him go, and he went to Wiesbaden, followed this fellow, Guido, and as I recall the story, he got a hotel room very close or just above the hotel room that Guido got and was able to tap mm-hmm. the, the walls or whatever it was. Um, sorry. Stay tuned for more of Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. 
The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're the legendary producer, writer, director. And we're, uh, we had a little technical issue as um, some of his fans were trying to reach him. But we were talking about his conversation with um, Detective Coffee. And we left off. We were in Wiesbaden, and there were meetings with the mob and the various bankers and the Vatican about getting money for the Vatican. Tell us more. Well, as I understood, as I understood it, uh, the deal the deal was that the mob people in, in in America had certain connections. They had a little influence at JFK Airport, for example. They had a little influence of certain of the banks, particularly out west. Uh, Bank of America, for example. And the idea was that if, um, if, if, the, if, if a certain number of, of stock certificates, let's say several million dollars worth of IBM stock or Pepsi-Cola stock or something like that, again, I'm, I'm generalizing because I'm, I don't have the specifics, um, would be sent, if they knew that they would be sent, let us say, to the Bank of Boston, uh, where would they go? They would not go directly to the Bank of Boston. They would be sent via JFK Airport. Well, um, trucks at JFK Airport frequently are slippery. And the, um, the, uh, some of those couple of million dollars worth of those, those stock certificates might fall off the back of the truck, slip off the back of the, the plane or the truck at that time. It's hard to design a truck. So stock certificates don't fall off. Eh? Yeah, it, that seemed to be the issue at the time, and they were very good at that. Uh, and at any rate, they took those, and my understanding, again, I keep prefacing this with my understanding because I don't have the specifics here, and I haven't seen Joe Coffee in 20 years at least, um, was that they would take those, they would take those uh, um, stock certificates, they would get the numbers from from however many there were, a couple of million dollars worth, evidently. And then they would, once they got the numbers, they would return the stocks. They would go back on the plane destined for Boston, and they would go to to the Bank of Boston or wherever that particular bank, whichever bank they, uh, it, it was determined they would go to. They then had the numbers. And they also, of course, the counterfeit people uh, with the mob would then sit down and make counterfeit it bills, counterfeit stock, counterfeit stock certificates from PepsiCo or IBM or whatever they happened to be at the time, with the exact numbers of those that were had already been that were real, that were in the vaults at the whatever bank they went to. They would take those numbers, they would make the they were a couple of the same number of million dollars worth of stock certificates with the real numbers. And they would deliver those to the Vatican, for which they would be paid whatever, 5, 10, 15 cents on the dollar. Who knows? I, I don't know what that is. And they would then, the Vatican would pay for that. Then they would put that in the Vatican Bank, in the vaults of the Vatican Bank, and they would stay there. They wouldn't use them. They wouldn't spend them. No, what they would do was when the Vatican needed money, again, as I understand it, when they, the Vatican needed some money, they would borrow the money. They would go a bank, Bank of Ambrosiana, let us say, or Bank of London, or one of those, and they would ask for a loan of X number of millions of dollars, and they would say, sure, we can do this, but where's your collateral? Ah, well, we have 
Oh, yeah. Right here. yeah. <laughs> and they would perhaps take them down to the vaults, and that's where they had the collateral for this. So it was not operated as collateral. That's my understanding of it. And um, uh, it's a fascinating story. And then when I saw that Marchinkus was involved and knew him from years earlier, um, that made an interesting connection for me. I mean, it, it, and then that's exactly what this whole, you know, the Ambrosio scandal was, was about counterfeit. And they paid a billion dollars in recompense, whatever they wanted to call it, the nomenclature, um, when we weren't guilty of anything, but we felt a moral obligation to do so. Come on. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was an altar boy. We, we, we do a lot of incense and stuff, but you can see through the smoke on that one. And uh, so but I wanted to have David on to tell the story and unfortunately it being somewhat shortchanged because I had the benefit of having the time to hear this over lunch and get all the, the color of it involved and it, it really is a remarkable story about what was going on at the Vatican at that time and we, there recently were have been some more recent revelations of scandals even recently with the Vatican Bank so it doesn't seem like this institution that has moved beyond um, the errors of well, I guess that was the 90s no, 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 this happened under, my understanding was this happened under Marchinkus, under, under Pope Paul VI, who was the Pope that I met. That, that so that would be the 70s, yeah, 60s, 70s, yes. Obviously, I was there with it in the room with him, but um, I thought it was a <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was, but you never know. Um, so uh, it, it, we were talking offline when we were listening to the the, the interview and having both of us have seen the movie Spotlight, which is a great movie, and it, I think it also it, it shows the power of the church, especially I grew up in New England. It's a very Catholic-dominated society. It just shows the, the, the power of the church in that region. But the, there's a great line in it, and I think um, Gerald Posner touched on it, is that you know the, um, the Vatican, um, they think they measure time in centuries. And so they, they can wait you out. And I, I think that's kind of what Poster was saying in terms of you're trying to get some access to some of the documents. These guys think in centuries. Sort of like the Muslim community. Yes. They go back to whatever, whatever year the, uh, Muhammad came in or when the Shiites and the Sunnis split. But what was your, th- what was your take on that? Take on? Uh, on just the whole, the, the, the long view of the Vatican. Oh, well, I mean, it was fascinating. They had all the glitter, all the gold, all the wood. I remember walking down the corridors of, of, of Castle Gandolfo, the magnificence of, of that place. And then outside of the um, outside of, of the Pope's uh, office, behind and behind his desk, there was an original Raphael, which I, is known. Um, but at, prior to going into the room, I mean, we were in a large, large. Uh, anti-chamber, a huge, huge anti-chamber, uh, in which there were priests and archbishops and bishops and cardinals running around, just all over the place. It was the most political place I had ever seen, and I have been to the, been White, to the White House, House yes. I've been to the White House, and I've been to you know other places like that. And it was remo- it was quite remarkable in that respect. So, who would you rather be? Would you rather be um, the Pope or J.R. Ewing? <laughs> Jay, are you in for sure? I don't wear dresses. <laughs> so you are hat and cattle. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
Any, anything about what, what are you working on these days? Oh, I'm going to talk about myself here. Yeah, we got a little bit. Um, a little bit. No, of time I'm working. I, actually, I'm working. I'm, I'm trying to get into a book about myself and my very beautiful wife, uh, with whom I have uh, lived wonderfully for almost 52 years. That's and uh, I'm writing that. And uh, uh, they're a charming couple. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. And uh, so I'm working on that and working on various aspects of it and uh, trying to get into it. David's, David's, you know, I, I must apologize to some of my listeners because he's yet another one of those stereotypical, you know, people who are in ice capades, uh, were in theater, acted. How, um, no, no, I was no, never oh. in ice capades. I was in Holiday on Ice. Holiday on Ice, forgive me. You know, I, I know we've had a lot of those people on the show before, but. <laughs> uh, I'm a comedy uh, You had a great time doing that, didn't you? Oh, sure. I was a comedy skater for, uh, for Holiday for a while. And you traveled in Europe. Oh yeah, I tell. I, I traveled in Europe. I traveled some of the, uh, actually, some of the largest, largest uh, um, towns in Europe. I mean, in, in Sweden, for example, I was in uh, Linköping, in Jönköping, <laughs> Vistras, nothing bigger than that. In, in in Germany, we were in Neumünster. Can there be a bigger town? I was in in France. I was in Caen, Tilburg, Holland. Hey, hey, you know, it doesn't get any bigger than that. We were playing for five or six thousand people. <laughs> Time, I think if I remember correctly. But. Although when you were doing, you know, kind of Broadway and off Broadway, I'm sure that that would have been a big crowd for that. Oh, enormous! Yeah, <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have five thousand people in a Broadway theater. No. And, uh, I'm, I'm, we're sitting at his desk, and I'm looking at a picture of him from his Broadway days with a, a bunch of the you know, very young, but now very well-known actors. But um, David, I want to thank you for hosting the show with us today. It's been a pleasure coming up here and um, talking about your experience in the Vatican and um, you know, again having um, being able to finally hear our interview with the uh, um, David Posner on the um, Gerald. Gerald Posner on the Vatican Bank. It, it, it's a really interesting book and he's done a great job with it. So if you want to tune in next week. Uh, we're going to have another episode. We're going to talk about an interesting model of having a free car service, but it's paid for by having advertising on the car. And you actually get points if you go to certain parts of town because they're trying to get more exposure for the ads. So we're going to talk about this new startup coming out of Silicon Beach, and we'll be back here next week with more of the latest developments in cyber law and business. Um, be sure to check us out at the Internet Law Center and learn more about what services we have. If there's an internet issue you have, I'm sure we can handle it. So see you next week. Um, follow us on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. This is Ben and Kelly. Have a great week and good luck um, getting out of the snow in Washington. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.
You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.